2: If we stay the course, we are dead! We are all dead! We were supposed to make the world a better place. What
3: I'm as as hell, and I'm not gonna
0: take this anymore!
1: I know Kung Fu.
3: You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain.
0: I'm as as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane!
3: 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do
0: all
1: men of power want? More power.
0: This is now the United States of Zombie Land. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of.
4: More power. Welcome to the desert. The real, war power.
0: There can
2: be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? you such a strange
4: phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me.
2: Happy heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the audio version of AB Live, this one episode 58. Raw and censored and unfiltered, just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. We got acquainted with legendary artist Alphonse Muka from his Freemason background to his Rosicrucian art, from his impact on occult Paris to his ordeal under Nazi fury. This included his mystical exploration of the Gnostic androgynous divinity in Le Pater, The Lord's Prayer, a work the Catholic Church censored. Writer, art historian, and film producer Thomas Négevin, joined us at the virtual Alexandria. Thomas is proof that good and ethical people do exist in Hollywood. As a bonus for Patrons at Patreon, Red Circle subscribers and AB Prime members, I'll include my interview with Tobias Churton on his book, Occult Paris. He'll grant an evocative and concise backdrop of Paris and its mysticism during Mucha's era. Many of the figures in Thomas's interview will make an appearance, and much more. You'll deeply understand also why the androgynous god was rising then, as well as the liberation of women. And it all goes back to, yes, the Gnostic and Hermetic ethos. Don't miss it. I'm so grateful to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria, and I hope I have served you well. Your support and company keep me going. Don't forget the Finding Hermes program and my voiceover availability. Whether it's an audiobook, commercial, podcast, or documentary, or even video game, I can bring stellar results to your project. Keep in mind you can now tip via Stripe since many of you use it, found in the show notes of any audio podcast. We need Gnosis more than ever, needless to say, and you won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guests and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Let us to our latest A.B. Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Human beings make life so interesting. Do you know that in a universe so full of wonders, they have managed to invent boredom? Quite astonishing. And we are live. Of course, as soon as I hit the live button, there were 33 people viewing the video. What a shocker. (laughs) <laughs> and it reminds me today, I was reading from uh, Plotinus, I have this obsession with Plotinus and his war against the Gnostics, and where he decides to unload on the Gnostics and call them idiots and all that is this Triatist 33. So it's all over the place, but regardless, welcome everybody to AB Live. So excited to be here, excited to see you joining the chat, and it's going to be a great evening welcome to the desert of the real and yes heresy shouldn't be this much fun but it is and this is a world as you know where men still have nipples and uh so it is but we do what we can and very excited tonight uh for a guest who also comes from the lawful and frigid dystopia of chicago and that is thomas negovan
3: thomas thanks for coming on Oh, thank you so much, guys, for having me.
2: Pleasure is all ours. And with us, too, we have the Moondog, Vance. Vance, how are you doing?
4: Okay, if I can remember to take off my mute, which I finally did tonight.
2: (laughs) Good, good, good. Awesome. Well, no mutes here. Um, I guess first we should do a little, as they say, housekeeping. As always, for those of you in the chat room, if you have questions for Thomas or myself or Vance, please write them in all caps Put as or put as many question marks as you are able. And we will get to your questions in time, outside of time, Aeonic time. Also, too, uh, as always, the show, as soon as it's done, will be on YouTube. And tomorrow I will put it on all podcast providers, uh, the audio. And and I usually put a cool bonus for patrons, um, AB Prime members, and Red Circle subscribers. So you get a full context of things. Always a good stuff in the archives and always love to share with you. And something I should say too, which I haven't said in a while. Obviously, these are tough times for many people. Obviously, this is uh, an apocalypse of uh, many kinds, Uh, as James True says, the best apocalypse ever. But these are times where many people are struggling. So uh, the offer is always open if any of you really uh, engages with the content and you want the full show. Or the full AB live show, just let me know. I'm always glad to just give it to you on the house. Uh, if you need it, I'm ready to give it to you, and it's never an issue. Other than that, uh, as always, uh, we got uh, tonight's gonna be a very cool show. We have uh, some great shows coming on next. Next week, we've got Jason Reza Giordani who's gonna discuss his book, Closer Encounters. And it really blows up the whole alien extraterrestrial arena with some uh, incredible new uh, findings and research about what's going on in outer space. Grand uh, let unified me
4: theory. Th- <laughs> yes,
2: a grand unified theory of UFOs. And uh, if you thought things were bad or Gnostic, wait till you hear this interview. It's like this, it's almost like the Sethians are coming down from Coke. That's how intense it is. It makes John Keel or uh, Charles Fort look like uh, Disney um, Disney writers. So intense stuff, but an incredible interview. And after that, we will have a a double feature show on Neoplatonism and Theurgy with two scholars or one scholar and one researcher that uh, will give you a whole. Not just summary of these uh, competitors of the Gnostics, these uh, off-worlders who also believed in gnosis, but gives new insights and dimensions, and also practical exercises that you can use now. So a lot of great content coming, and I thank you all for being here and supporting the show. But enough of this, enough of my drivel, as I as I say often. Um, Thomas, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested? Uh well I guess which came first chicken egg the art or the esoterica how did uh, how did things go with you
3: um I mean they're so intertwined <laughs> I think yeah. that uh I think that probably it was probably the aesthetics first because even when I think about art nouveau. Um, the first time that I saw Art Nouveau, I saw these images in a book and they looked to me like what I thought, you know, an otherworldly landscape would look like because that nature had encroached so much upon reality and, you know, lamps that looked like tendrils and things like that. And so I think that when I was younger, I had an inclination toward the more mystical thinking, but it was the aesthetics that were probably... More the entry point because I was raised Roman Catholic, so there was not a lot of uh you know it wasn't like i I grew up in California or something like that, so yes, yeah, so it was the art first and then and then getting into writings and and definitely um you know the the more fantastic thinking of of a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers kind of nudged me toward that um and then probably it was in my 20s when i when i got interested a little more academically in you know the yakub burma universe and things like that
2: yeah the the mystical art which we shall get into and what um i guess what part of chicago are you from or more like what church did your parents go to yeah that's what they ask in chicago
3: what parish are you from is that uh I, i i was born and raised Uh, on the South side of Chicago, I did have a stint in Michigan for a while, but it was, I I grew up near Midway airport and lived there until I was a young adult. Uh, and then I lived up North as all, uh, people of, of a certain ilk. It's very working class on the South side Mm -hmm. of Chicago. So if you're interested Mm -hmm. in the art kind of migrate North and then, uh, about 10 years ago, moved out to Los Angeles. So I've been out here for, yeah, for the past decade. But I miss Chicago as a, uh, as an emotional place. But I, as as you, I'm sure hear everybody say, "Do not miss the weather."
2: No, the summers are great. But yeah, I, I I'm no longer in Chicago, and I don't miss it at all. Anyway, mm-hmm. so. I don't. Yeah, that's another story. Another story. And uh, for the the audience, what are you doing in L.A. these days? I guess when we talked on the phone, I I envy you because you uh, rub shoulders with all these cool cats that I admire, like Grant Morrison and Clyde Barker. I'm like, how did you live the dream? I mean, you were reading comics as a kid and now you're hanging out with these exemplars.
3: I think that the, um, the when, I, when I kind of came up and I got into the world of antique dealing, uh, there's a very decorative element to it where people are looking at um, finding people with money that want something that has a lot of blue in it or a vase that's a certain shape. And my interest was always uh, way more into the ideologies behind the work. And so I was having a hard time as an art dealer connecting with the audience. The pieces that I was really emotionally attracted to would never sell. And then a piece that was very fluffy, like a pretty woman or something, would always sell really quickly. And so as I was building this uh, kind of arsenal of an inventory of symbolist art, um, I was reading the Bud Plant art books catalog. Bud Plant has been dealing in art books for decades and decades. And he there was a book uh, on an artist named Carlos Schwab. He did the poster for the uh, for Salon Rosecroix exhibition, but he was a fantastic symbolist. And there's this beautiful big hardcover book. And, and in the description, he said, if you like Barry Windsor Smith, you will love Carlos Schwab. Well, Barry Windsor Smith, was doing artwork for Conan the Barbarian comics. Mm-hmm. And his work sold for very large amounts of money. And I was thinking, I can't sell Carlos Schwab to save my life at the art shows that I'm going to. What if, you know, and then all of a sudden, like in that moment, it all flooded back. My entire arc was through fantasy and through comic books and all of this. And so I thought, you know, I bet there's people in that room who are going to look at this the way that I do. Mm-hmm. And, and so we then started doing San Diego Comic-Con, which, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, huge pop culture event. We, we set up this big pavilion in the middle of the floor And we brought a big Art Nouveau room that was an installation that we had to like send trucks out and go in days early to build. And it just cost so much money to get there. And we were there the first time and I was oiling the furniture and I heard two voices behind me arguing about who would win. And keep in mind, I've brought like over a million (laughs) dollars of art, like all of these artifacts from... The World's Fair in 1900. I mean, this thing is so set up, and I'm hearing two voices behind me arguing about who would win in a fight between Wolverine and Darth Vader. And so I had a panic attack, and I thought, I'm losing every penny that I spent to get here. And I was like, I don't know if I have enough money to get home. Like we spent. This is all what this my life to came money. to. This is where I've yeah, arrived. I thought, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> well, fast forward. So opening night uh like charles vess who's a comic book artist i think is the first person that i met there bud plant the the book publishing or book distributor uh was one of our first customers and so we had such a great opening night i got to meet so many people just in that first night that i was fans of that knew this work that knew the really obscure things and um lance Henriksen, the actor is a potter himself and he was looking at the art nouveau pottery and he knew it from the Musée d'orsay and the fact that he could touch it so we were finding people that were in that space that were creatives that had the same course that i did um and the funniest thing that happened that opening night is someone said to me uh Wow, are you? This is really cool. Are you guys having a good time? And I told him, "Yes, we're having an amazing time." And I recounted that story, and then without missing a beat, when I told him about the Wolverine Darth Vader thing, he says, "Wolverine," and I feel like I went <laughs> white as a sheet. I was like having a flashback, and he says, "Well, because I created Wolverine." And it was Len Wein, and you know that was what for fourteen or fifteen years. That was what Comic-Con was for us every year is, um, you know, people like Guillermo del Toro and, uh, you know, the Dave McKean is someone that I've done a lot with, who I really, really respect as a human being and an artist. Um, But all of it came from from being in Comic-Con. Michael Kaluta is another comic book artist that... He came up to me that first year and said, "Thank you for being here." And in my head, I'm thinking, "You're the reason I like Art Nouveau. Your art (laughs) is what when I saw Art Nouveau." And so it was just kind of a really cool lineage. And he said that he felt like artists, like from his generation, were passing the torch with someone younger coming in and kind of banging this Art Nouveau slash symbolism drum. So it was a long answer, but that's but it's it's really true. Great is yeah, where great origin things. story. Yeah.
2: And now these days <laughs> yeah. you work on basically you talk about aesthetic. You work on the aesthetic for certain movies and sets. Is that your,
3: no, your superhero I, I, um, power? I've, I've there's there's little bits of things that I've done, but the the main thing that I'm doing with film is it's half of it's archiving and half of it's creative. Um we're halfway filmed with a weird western movie that's meant to be like an old heavy metal magazine um mm-hmm. jake Busey oh. is like it's like john wick meets uh el topo or something and <laughs> like, it's a there's vampires in it and esteban moroto designed them for us he was uh he designed red sonia's bikini in the 70s and uh mm-hmm. he was the one of the main vampirella artists so i'm trying to do the more creative stuff and then on the uh the uh archiving side we're we're restoring caligula which is a whole that would be a whole podcast unto itself but so the work that i've done for other people has been extremely extremely marginal and one of those things where you're taking a small check knowing that what you're doing will never ever ever see the light of day Mm. but you know it's I guess that's what the industry is, and I'm not a big fan of like, I like output. I know a lot of people that make a lot of money and maybe don't have a lot of um, things come into the world. And that's kind of in contrast with what I want to do, which is why I do so many completely bizarrely disparate things is they all kind of work on the wheel together. (laughs) But every day is something interesting.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I can't, uh, we should do Caligula. We talked about it on the phone. It's a movie I've seen many times and I know you cringe, it's so but uh, <laughs> it's,
3: uh,
2: it is a disturbing movie. I don't know why. And, uh, sometimes I also like it's, uh, historically very inaccurate at some times, but it, yeah. uh, but it's a fascinating You're horror fantasy, it. sexual, uh, historical Roman
3: thing. Yeah. Well, they they filmed, the, the the quick version I can give is that they filmed over 90 hours. And what happened is that the, re, the version that was released, Malcolm McDowell has been saying for, you know, whatever, I'm drawing a blank, 40 years, um, that that was a travesty, that what they made was a good movie. Mm-hmm. And having seen the footage, he's right. There's fantastic performances in there. And the version that we'll be releasing, not one frame is going to be anything anyone has ever seen before. Because there's 90 hours of footage we didn't need to use. Like for every shot that they used, there was a better one. It's very bizarre. And there are entire scenes that they never used. Lots of pornography that they filmed on the sets when the actors weren't there to cut in. All that's gone.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, And, uh, you know, there's a couple other really interesting thing. I mean, one of them, the one that I feel like I can say is that there's an opening sequence that they never filmed that gives a context. Um, And Dave McKean, who did all the Sandman covers, I mean, he's like the Picasso of that universe, uh, is going to be doing an opening sequence for us to give all the context that the audience needs. So there's lots of weird little things. So it'll it'll be a weird... uh, thing to bring back into the world in 2022 but it's super cool and uh it's it's a shame that um everyone involved with the movie when it was made was so at each other's throats like meaning bob guccione the director tinto brass Mm -hmm. uh gore vidal like it was there's just so much ego going on and it, it it could have been Really interesting, but I also make the argument all the time. If it had been a good movie, I don't think we would be talking about it today. (laughs) Like how many people know Ben-Hur that are under 50? And the answer is not many, you know, And Caligula kind of this weird thing simmering. So in some ways, like, you know, maybe there's like a a really interesting, happy ending to the story that it had all this spectacle and all the censorship cases and Mm -hmm. but anyway that's a whole other yeah, and again, it uh, Caligula. It's been like the last <laughs> few years of my life has been your it,
2: life. It's been, yeah. been your your existence. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren. One of of the Helen
3: Mirren footage that no one's Oh, seen.
2: and she was yeah, she was uh she so was incredible. Beautiful. Yeah, there was some good acting in that film. It was a fascinating experiment, if you would. So
3: it's interesting to hear you say that because when I watch it, I see the bad takes. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm very curious to see what you think. I'll make sure that you see it. Yeah,
2: I want to see it. And I could, yeah, it would be great. I don't with or without the porn. I'd rather have without the porn
3: because it's like. Well, there's a lot in there. Like when people have asked me, oh, you're taking all of it out. I was like, (laughs) it's hard to, I mean, you know, they still,
4: there's a lot.
2: <laughs> Roman orgies, baby. Got, yeah. yeah, that was
4: I mean, the it's, deal. It's, Roman orgies. 10-minute version, right? <laughs> well, there's
3: one, yeah. It's uh there's enough. Like there's a scene um that is where uh Tiberius has collected his living statues, mm. and so there's like incredible, incredible makeup with um you know someone with three eyes and different things like that and you only get like one second of these things and i was looking at the other night there's almost two hours of footage just of that stuff oh my god you literally could just make a movie that's caligula and tiberius walking around in the you know sideshow element so
2: so in those but, days that movie must have been really expensive it was like a a blockbuster. Busting. I believe it was
3: twice the budget of Star Wars.
2: Oh my God! Yeah, I can tell because all the
3: sets, my the armies, the same or twice, but it was incredibly expensive, and lots and lots and lots of money was uh, being stolen. Theoretically, by one of the producers, um, it was. It's. That's a whole other story. The other thing that we're doing simultaneously is we're making a documentary on the making of Caligula because that story is un- unbelievable. Wow! But so for the last, you know, two years or whatever, when I walk up into my office, I yell to everyone, "All right, I'm headed to ancient Rome," and people <laughs> go, "Oh, good luck. We'll get your therapist <laughs> on the phone for when you're done." <laughs> what have the it's Romans fun. ever it's, done for us? They gave yeah. us Caligula. <laughs> they gave us Caligula. So, but it's fun to be, you know. I mean, it, interestingly enough, with like you know the Lapatera things that you know we'll talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. To, it is all connected. Like to to be like the reason why I got the Caligula job was because I was able to see it as an artwork. Like, to me, it is it is a historically significant artwork. It's not about it being a movie. Um, and so even when you asked about interest in art or mysticism, like, these things all play together. Like, you can't be interested in ancient history and literature and art and all of these things without seeing that the doorways open to these other rooms. And the more doors that you open... Um, you know, the more the more enriching any of those experiences are, in my experience. Oh, agreed.
2: There was no difference. Art is the act of creation. It's how we become divine and godlike and honor the the divine and open those doors yep. of perception. You have that quote in your book where William Blake, uh, to clean the doors of perception, you see everything as it is, uh infinite, eternal. So uh and your book definitely talks a lot about it well i want to show the audience the book and then we can decide which way to go thomas but
4: okay
2: this is wonderful right.
3: Look
4: at this.
3: <laughs> i was ready for this is amazing.
2: no no this is the real mccoy and this is right next to my uh carl jung the red book and it's a it's a gorgeous book it's incredibly gorgeous and i get i when i read it i just get emotional because the artwork is just beautiful and your introduction how you lead to it is just amazing so uh highly recommend this guys this is a, a beautiful piece of artwork in itself so, we,
3: so we, when I was to we printed it so large so that we could print the artworks like specifically muka's collection of of le pater which is like the the meat of the book Mm -hmm. so they could be printed to scale so that is that's that's why that book is so enormous and then the soft cover that's coming out at the end of the year will be a more manageable size but you kind of have two options you can get the one that's meant to be tucked in your knapsack to go you know read under a tree and then there's the one that you kind of need a coffee you table need to, You need a <laughs> to, to be able to lay there and, and get into it yeah
2: yeah and already they're asking in the chat where can they get this we'll make sure to let them know at the end of the interview yeah. uh where you can get it and it's definitely worth the prize um, back in 2009 i bought jung's red book and it was a hundred bucks and it's some right. of the best hundred bucks i've spent because like this book it's it's an event it's an experience Get it and meditate on it. You know what I mean? That's really takes book to what they are and art to what it should be. So oh, I appreciate that. So I tried, happy this type of content still exists today.
3: I tried to make it where if you just want an entertaining flip through that it does that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the majority of the audience that, that I have through Century Guild is art people. And so the majority of people that bought this book are interested in it purely for the aesthetics. Um, But of course, that was not Mooka's intention. And it's an interesting opportunity to give people all these different slivers. But then the more that you read it, there are definitely areas that you can dive into. And I really wanted people to be able to take time with the art. And I don't feel like you can do that with a little book. and it was, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the the idiot's guide to mystical art and thinking. And the, the one that was the hardest, hardest page of the entire book was the two-page spread on sacred geometry. Mm. And it doesn't look like it. It just doesn't. But that was the thing that getting everything into like a really essential, it's easy to do with the symbol, but how do you do it with language? Like that was the part that uh, if I had 20 pages, it, would have been easier, but that was, Mm. that was hard. And with all of it, you know, there's all these little footsteps set in different salons and different schools of thinking, but those were all the things that Alphonse Mucha had on his path that led to him creating Le Pater. And I should also say, I guess, if people don't know, because I'm not talking, maybe to some art people here. Alphonse Mucha is the quintessential Art Nouveau illustrator, and he was famous for theater posters and champagne posters. And he made this really limited edition series of illustrations that was his retelling of the Lord's Prayer. Um, but when you look at them, they're so full of clues and keys that every book that's ever mentioned them. Just as, oh, yeah, Muka made up a bunch of things from his fantastic imagination, and that's completely not true. Uh, there are reasons why everything is in there. And so that's what took all the years of researching and writing to figure out, for me, what they were and then how to explain them to other people.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely get into uh, Mooka. How do you want to start? Do you want to show the visuals first or do you want to talk a little bit about leading up to it? Because again, your book doesn't just show uh, Mooka's work, but it also has sections on mystical art and sacred geometry and the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. Maybe you can tell the audience about the very cool lead up to Mooka. I mean, we were talking about William Blake, and no, again, it's hard to understand art and mysticism. But obviously, William Blake's visionary art has uh, really influenced a whole generation's cultures itself. But yeah, there was a, a scholar who said William Blake was the first person in history to come up with his own. Artistic cosmology. In other words, before Tolkien, before C.S. Lewis, or all you know, Michael Moorcock, and you know, it became where every fantasy writer or science fiction had to create the the creation story of their world building, as you would call it. Yeah. William Blake did this in the 18th century, and nobody had done it before. But then you go, well, what about you know the ancients creating their own cosmologies? That's where you get into the you could say William Blake wasn't created. He was discovering, although William Blake would say that your imagination is an act of creation with God, which is what the ancients do. So it's kind of, where, again, I where the,
3: are. I'm imagining yeah. the time counter on this episode crossing seven hours. <laughs> you start going, and then you can talk about this. You do that. It's like, yeah. It's, yeah. Every one of these is such, a, is such a rabbit hole to go down. And, and another thing just to throw out is that... Um, you know one of the things that happens a lot when like you mentioned a lot of the people that i've met and either done work with or been affiliated with that are through that kind of maybe comic book or fantasy world and um you know one thing that is uh has been interesting about that is you do get to meet people who you really respect their work mm-hmm. and sometimes it's really wonderful and i'm going to use like Dave McKean is an example of that sometimes it's extremely extremely disappointing I will not name names there but uh the the one thing that happened with Pater that was really mind-blowing for me is that that probably my biggest influence in, in developmental thinking was Michael Moorcock mm. and when I saw the name Morcock on an invoice for a purchase of the book I, I had a little aneurysm. And so he very, (laughs) very generously wrote the introduction to the paperback edition that's coming out. Um, And so another really fantastic quote came from Roger Dean. He gave us a great cover blurb. And so uh, that inner 12-year-old that was discovering Art Nouveau and all of these kinds of thinking, the thing that made me think of it in that moment is the idea of the multiverse. Mm. We're seeing it all over Marvel Comics right now. And Giordano Bruno posited the idea, but the idea of it in pop culture, that characters could overlap and interact with each other, that was all Michael Moorcock. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that nobody watching What If or going (laughs) to see, you know what I mean? Like, This is a Michael Moorcock thing, but it's a Michael Moorcock thing. And so it's interesting that something that has become so much a part of popular culture has its roots that recently 1960 you know early 60s 63 mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so you because i say that because you mentioned tolkien and you mentioned blake and i just think it's really interesting to live in a time where you can think before people talked about multiverse in that in that way yeah, yeah and just and to to I guess, connected to the book thing that um, the reason that we put the William Blake and, and we go back to Albrecht Durer is in my I thought Albrecht Durer is like the first rock star of. Christian mysticism, he was the first person that we know by name who was creating work that you show it to someone and today they still know it, even if they don't know his name and you say the name Durer and most people do know it. Um, and so uh, I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this statement, except to say the reason that we put Durer and Blake in all of that is that what you said about about Blake's thinking was completely necessary to where Alphonse Mucha would have been in the late 19th century, sitting at tables with people like Strindberg and meeting uh, Albert de Roches, they were doing spirit photography, and it was so prevalent in late 19th century thinking to be discussing William Blake, to be looking at those things and turning away from the microscope and the telescope and saying, okay, but what are the internal landscapes? Um And so when people, when I would have something like from Le Pater, say at an antique show or an art fair, people just would look at it and they would just see the shapes. It's like a mandala or, you know, Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't, they would say, well, it's not as interesting as Mooka's beer poster. And the reason is because when you look at it, it's like, well, why is this here? What do these shapes mean? Why is this shrouded figure here? Um, and so kind of like, uh, you know, it's literally the difference between an object being one-dimensional or two-dimensional or three-dimensional. And in order to really understand this beautiful, beautiful body of work that he did, you do need to know about Albrecht Durer's symbolism and about William Blake and the salons of the 19th century and yeah that's why it's such a heavy book it's Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so and, as, and as you you argue yeah and the uh, paris in the 19th century was a hotbed of occultism and yeah these individuals these artists were influenced by the rosicrucians by the freemasons yeah. by the alchemists from bim and all that again the art and the mysticism was entwined obviously Will, william blake is maybe the apex the the real yeah. flow of this power yeah. That transformed our very consciousness in Western society, and again, a hotbed was Paris in the 19th century. So, it's this is important to know. Um, so, uh, and wh- before we get into the visuals, how would you define Art Nouveau? Then, the elevator pitch: is
3: Art Nouveau is um, it was it was an art movement that celebrated nature. Uh, after the Industrial Revolution, artists felt that technology was destroying society and they hmm. needed, needed Sounds to, familiar. Yeah, it, it sounds <laughs> like the treatise to the Matrix when you read yeah, yeah. manifestos from that period. Wow. But they were looking at Japanism and looking at, um, at ways that uh, art was um, utilizing natural elements in a way that brought nature into both the streets and living space. Uh and so a lot of times people get Art Nouveau and Art Deco mixed up and it's basically Art Nouveau is nature, Art Deco is technology. Art Deco is clean straight lines, speed. And there are, you know, some there's a lot of crossover between the two, but but those are what the two polar ends are. Art Nouveau is nature in art. Uh in the, you know, late late 1890s, early 1900s. I'm starting to get really academic in my head because I started to say early 1900s and then a voice said, by 1900, it was over. And I was like, all
2: right. (laughs) You're in a professor scolding you. So So they they did what the romantics did against the Enlightenment. The romantics were kind of a reaction against too much thinking, too much ration. Art Nouveau was the reaction to the toys of the nineteenth century. <laughs> These...
3: It was it was it was more it was more of a philosophical reaction than an aesthetic mm-hmm. reaction. In the mm-hmm. sense of there were factories opening up on the outskirts of town, and so people were mm-hmm. feeling encroached upon in a different way. That that technological alienation uh, mixed with kind of the um, the enchantment with the idea of the Orient. Uh, there was mm-hmm. There was actually a salon called La Art Nouveau Bing. Uh, and one of the things that I got to do in the book that I was excited about is I, I was able to get the original photos from the museum scanned at such a scale that we could do glorious two-page spreads where you could see in the cabinets what they were selling. But he would sell mm-hmm. ancient Japanese artifacts next to these items that had been made just that month. Um, and so the artists were kind of feeding off of that, uh, ancient idea of the aesthetics of nature. And so you also see a lot of medieval inspired, but the thing that I was, the thing I was just distracted by is that in 1900, they had the world's fair and that introduced Art Nouveau to the world, but that's kind of like, the day that you see the cure on david letterman you know what i mean like it was yeah. like at that point in a lot of ways it was over because eight albums yeah. or nine albums in once it reached that when it reached the point where your dad was listening to it and that's what it was like with art nouveau is by 1900 yeah. and everybody agreed this is fantastic and then in 1902 you had charles rennie Macintosh and the glasgow school Doing this incredibly futuristic, alien-looking, super-sleek designs, uh, and so the people that were really forward-thinking by by 1902 thought Art Nouveau was dead.
2: dead.
4: Yeah,
3: <laughs>
2: the same thing. That, same thing that happened with grunge. As soon as you brought grunge out into the world, it had yeah, a the, the life of Nirvana a year or two. Nirvana it just yeah, it just died. <laughs> you can't bring this gnosis out into the yeah, the masses yeah. or the hylix. So, oh well. Uh, Vance, before we get into the visuals with Thomas, any questions for the audience?
4: Yeah, there's two. Um, uh, one of uh, somebody wanted to know. Actually, uh, Anon wanted to know. Uh, seeing your guitar in the background, would you be willing to play something <laughs> for the audience?
2: Smoke on the water, house of the rising <laughs> sun, or something.
4: There you go. I'll
3: play some cure and some uh, some cure. nirvana songs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'll take that as an answer, well, I guess. Um, <laughs> and uh, It'll be well, we episode. have one. What ancestors inspired uh, uh, Mucca? Can we say that uh, they were div- the divine? Can we say where the divine inspiration for Mucca came? Where the divine inspiration? Yeah, that's what YVD asked. Yes.
3: I mean, that's kind of a metaphysical question. I don't know. I mean, he was raised in the church and he uh, did uh, extensively, he, he played the violin in the church and he there's a great great quote in the book where he talks about kneeling in the church and with the incense and the candles and everything uh feeling that he was uh on the precipice of like a divine horizon or something i I don't remember the quote exactly but um so his lifelong fascination with the filter of the christian aspects of mysticism definitely came from just growing up in Moravia and it being so devoutly Catholic. Um, An interesting side note is that Le Pater was poorly received in his homeland. Uh, They had to change some of the text because his idea of this divine feminine and the idea of androgyny and the idea of this mystical thinking was just too weird for them. I mean, it does, it reads more like Woodstock than it does something you'd read in the church. The whole thing is very hippie-ish. And so they rewrote the text to be, um, I mean, it's very, I uh, I, I personally am, am not, uh, you know, there's so much uh, indoctrination in, in a lot of church writings and, and you see it in the way they wanted him to change the thinking. <sighs> But the idea was uh, and and one of the things that the paperback has is we do have all the translations for all the Czech editions, but it takes something that's very um, elastic and emotional and and puts a lot of power in the hands of the individual and returns it to the the good Catholic way of thinking. Mm. So that's just kind of an interesting. I'm trying not to fall into a rabbit hole. I keep talking about these things and <laughs> like I could go for an hour. But so I, I think that if I understand the, the question correctly, I think that his influence as he perceived it would have been an evolution of the Judeo-Christian God. I think that he was raised with that. But I think that he also knew that his perception of that was not... Uh. Exactly what he had been reading about when he was fourteen. He certainly wasn't reading Michael Moorcock like I was.
2: <laughs> like okay. I was, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have been chatting with Mister Moorcock, which is kind of a dream come true. I mean, Philip K. Dick, Michael Moorcock are my favorite writers, but I'm afraid to so, uh... talk to him. Huh?
3: Yeah, I'm afraid. Oh, to talk to... so, so many so people nice. that I that I adore have turned out to be just such assholes. That I'm, like, terrified.
2: You mentioned over the phone. We better not say it in public. You'll break, <laughs> you'll break a lot of hearts. Of uh, A lot of these are modern oh Gnostic God. occult exemplars. And, uh, just, but, yeah, I usually don't mention Michael Moorcock on Aeon Byte, even though he's been, he is one of the, you know, so like nice. you said, multiverse. Uh, chaos magic is indebted to him, and his ideas are just amazing. Um,
3: he's been so generous and so funny, and I'm just like... Being really timid and he wrote the most glowing glowing introduction he was supposed to do a back cover quote and he said he just couldn't narrow it down and wrote this beautiful beautiful introduction that is just like the most i mean i try to live my life in service and i try to um i mean i do favors for people all the time i try to do that because i always uh you know you'd you be the change you want to see in the world kind of thing and there's just so many times where Uh, I feel like um, it's not anything I'm sad about, but I do feel like I give so much more than I might receive. And so for somebody to do something that was so selfless and to put so much time into it, it's just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen often to me in this way. And the fact that not only that that happened, but that it's someone that was so, uh, such a... Uh, A map point, you know, a a pin in the map in terms of me moving has just been uh, like one of the coolest things that's happened surrounding this book. And I I feel like it inspires me even more to try to live in that space of paying it forward. Like I'm hoping I'm hoping that 20 years from now, you know, that there's someone that sends me a book or that I see that I say something nice about and they say oh, My god, your pater book totally changed me, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, it's an interesting world, yeah, and it and it should be mentioned too. I mean, yeah, you're talking about how uh Mukha sees God, and I even titled this Gnostic Gods because obviously the Gnostics saw the, the divine beings and even the archons as uh, androgynous, uh, hermaphrodites, uh, gender bending. There was a it wasn't sort of like the platonic energy, but they're very descriptive on these beings who yeah. shift. And uh, and then it's interesting, obviously, you've got Blake and his art where it shows uh, the male god in not very good terms. We can never forget all of his the views, but uh, Jacob Boehme was a big uh, advocate of Sophia and thought Sophia was a force that the Trinity need and a force that Christianity needs. So I'm not saying, I'm just speculating, yeah. but in occult circles, these things were probably moving some Absolutely. way or another. So that's, that's,
3: that's kind of the point of the book is that to look at Le Pater and just look at it through the lenses of Art Nouveau and Christianity, like you'll miss 90% of it. Like you have to at least on a, know who Jacob Burma is and know what the Invisible College is and know mm-hmm. about Hermeticism and. So I did have one complaint, uh, uh, someone left me a very, very nice review and their complaint was that I just didn't go into these things enough. And I laughed because you could kill a small child with that book, with the way <laughs> it is now. And my first draft was gonna be like 450, 500 pages. The hard part was getting it down. And so I, d- I laughed because I empathized and I understood but it's really, for those other fragments, it's meant to just be a doorway. And my hope is yeah. that people who love the art get just enough to understand this. But, yeah, maybe someone is going to go read Jakob Burma. And, I mean, Flood is another one. Oh, his, his work mean, is incredible. Not yeah. A yeah, and all of his. I mean, I, that, to me, that stuff is so mesmerized. There's the one artwork that's in there that's the D.A. Frerer, the, uh, the secret what is it all things my head lives in so many places it's i forget phrases it's before that not sure i don't know
2: oh well it's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> if you can think of it let me know yeah i don't want to get mesmerized because again For anybody who reads this book, you can just meditate. But it's
3: it's one that you see a lot on the internet, and it's low resolution. And it's one that Mm -hmm. when you see it in books, it's really small. Mm -hmm. So that, for me, was one that to be able to print it so big, where you can really, really read all the little script. Mm -hmm. Same thing with that drawing of the Invisible College. Mm -hmm. You know, like the detail Mm -hmm. in that. There's some of it. That's the Frere one, yeah. Yeah. Like so 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 good oh it's wonderful to see it like this
2: all right well what I was just just
3: one one thing I'll share quickly is just that the the um the Blake piece that was right before that or right after that the image that they have from the museum they sent it to me I'm like oh my gosh you know actually I I really want to do a two-page spread with this can you send me a larger one so they went into the raw file and sent me like the, the master file. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, but I really need this bigger. They said, how big is this book that you're making? <laughs> Nobody in the world is thinking, ah, it's 12 by 16. And so they actually went in and reached, sh- like there were people that reshot things at museums mm, for- cool. so that we could get such incredible detail on those artworks that it really is meant to be like being able to walk through a museum. Awesome.
2: Well, why don't you? We do a little sheet, a screen share, and we look at some wonderful visuals. I also have. I mean,
3: I can pull the book up if you want me to go through some of the.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. Whatever, whatever you want to share, we will appreciate. I mean,
3: you know, lock the doors. I could be here for. No problem. <laughs>
2: time, time is not an issue on this Odin's day.
3: I mean, I can. Uh, Let's see if this. All
2: right. Yeah, you just now. You just click add to stream, or I can do it. Let's see. There you go. Oh, down here.
3: We yeah, we can see it it now. All right. So I um I mean I guess the first thing that I can show you guys are looking at the book itself. (laughs) You know, I, I pulled up the PDF earlier, and then I realized the if I bring up the um these files that we can actually go. Like way into the imagery, and so the the thing that Muca did that's really the most interesting is that he did three plates for each artwork. I'm just kind of getting to the beginning. So when you know it, we don't even get into Lapater until we're at like page yeah. 114. So he. Okay, so first of all, the his vision of God is clearly not the bearded man, Michelangelo on a throne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know he's got this beautiful. Uh, this is why I did it on the original because I was like, ah, oh, I can get way in. <laughs> um, but you know that's humanity in the palm mm-hmm. of of the hand of this deity, that again is 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 very. Androgynous. Which yeah,
2: very under, yeah, again, the Gnostic side and how they also revered, revered other androgynous gods like Hermes and Dionysus, those kind of uh, in between the world gods.
3: And so we've got all of his sketches, but like the idea of the pomegranate, I don't want to get too far in, into craziness, but you know, like people were saying, oh, the pomegranate, well, he used that because it's a pretty image it's like no he didn't like the idea of i mean you know i don't i want to go into all of that but you know the idea of the ouroboros and which mm-hmm. i'm sure i mispronounced and you know the angel holding the egg and you've got the cosmos with nothing yet formed and so uh we in the book we've got his original sketches for everything and then for each one he did a illuminated manuscript page which is his his uh, interpretation of what the verse means. this is what the Czech market didn't like. The traditional market did censor this um and then for each one, he did these bizarre post apocalyptic landscapes mm. that are these kind of uh dream sequence type things of humanity like here's the idea of mankind you know struggling in in their you know, the mire of humanity, and then it's the eye of God that, you know, is, is there. And again, his God is not the Judeo-Christian God. It's not the man on the throne. It is the idea of the spirituality and self-betterment. And I just thought of something as a good example. So like here, you've got that idea of man encroaching through that. And then when you go back into that, people are going to get whiplash here from this stuff. <laughs> uh, when you go back to the 19th century salons, I mentioned Carlo Schwab earlier, and uh, the poster for the first salon Rosicqua—it's the same idea. You've mm-hmm. got—I'll oh, take a second to oh, there we go. You've got humanity kind of stuck in the mire, and it's only through ascending. You know, you've yeah. got the burning heart, the lily of purity. It's only through ascending towards wisdom and knowledge that you evolve. Uh, so there, that's, that's part of why that line of thinking does really inform. This is another Carla Schwab illustration. That's a, that's a whole androgyny. That's another Damn. rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But so with each of them, uh, you know, there's there's reason there's all of they just look like beautiful artworks to someone in an art fair. But anyone that's interested in Masonic thinking or Hermeticism, you know, there's so much coding in all of these. And, um, you know, just to kind of go on that tangent for a minute, Muka uh, wound up becoming a devout Freemason. And for, he created the first Czech speaking lodge. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's a big book. There's a lot in here. Uh, And so he created jewelry for the lodge. Wow. And
4: he's Catholic
3: and he's a Freemason. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how.
4: Interesting. Especially in those days.
3: Yeah, I don't know what his relationship was with the church at the end of his life and I don't know what the relationship was like in Prague. I mean certainly if it was in Paris it would have been extremely complicated. Uh but he yeah, in 1919 he established the first lodge and then uh 22 was when he the Supreme Council for Czechoslovakia. So in 1938 uh, is when the Masonic Lodge had to close. And interestingly enough, the reason that Hitler took him in, not Hitler personally, but the reason the Nazis took him in for questioning was because he was such a prominent public figure. Mm. Uh, And in Prague, a large, large part of that was because of his Masonic activities. So he was taken in for questioning, um, And unfortunately, his his he was frail. Uh, He did not die uh, while he was in custody, but he did die shortly thereafter. Uh, So there, there really is a direct link to, uh, you know, to having been apprehended by the Gestapo.
2: And it was basically the interrogation was a little physical in those days. Yeah, I mean, he was an old man. Yeah, yeah,
3: conditions too. I'm sure that they were
2: not cold Ideally. cells, no food, all that shit.
3: Yeah, so that's a very, very, it's a, it's a very sad ending to his story, but um, you know, I mean, he made so much beautiful work, and uh, this is uh, him in 1928. Um, what do you want me to show you in here? Good question.
4: God, there's so much good stuff. <laughs> I mean I can talk about any it. Something yeah, a yeah. lot of symbolism. How's that? Like it was loaded with symbols so that you can point out Yeah, well, just just
2: to back know. up, Le Pater was his exegesis or version of the Lord's Prayer from beginning to end. Is that was that was what he was
3: attempting to do. Yeah, it was a it was a folio of 23 plates, a title page uh the seven verses each one with a prayer mandala um the illustrated manuscript the dream landscape and then at the end there was was the amen i mean what one thing that was interesting to me was and this is a good example you've got these images on the side Mm -hmm, um yeah and so i mean first of all uh i mean we did make a t-shirt of this because it's so cool (laughs) Of, you know, the fact that he took recognizable images and, and put his style on it, and then some less recognizable, but but each one of these correlates to the symbolism that he utilized in the plate itself. Um, the best way that I can explain, and these lines are just my program. The best way that I can explain this body of work is that it almost works like a wheel uh it's not something that you can experience in a linear fashion to just start here and then move through um you know like this plate and then the next one uh because they're they refer so much um, I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's not a linear book. That's the only way I can put it. Multidimensional. Yeah. I mean, like the, there are things that, that in the same way that knowing what the eye of Providence is helps you un- understand that first image where there's an eye in the sky. Like there are so many things here that kind of feed back upon each other that to me, that's one of the most interesting parts is that, uh, you can look at an artwork like this and just think it's incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more that you go through and you look at, I don't know, say you're looking at, uh, you know, kind of like this this Cathar Hammer and you go to... Um, uh, I mean, actually, I'll stop here for a minute just because this one is so cool. It's also easy to get distracted mm, and yeah. Getting lost in it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's why we made the book so big. Like, you have to be able to get in there. But all of these crazy eyeballs floating in the ether, it looks yeah. like a psychedelic rock poster. It's from, 18, <laughs> it's from 1899. Like, it's, I mean, it's so modern in its thinking. It is or way
2: ahead of its time. Even um, I was looking at some of the artwork of uh, Toulouse Lautrec, and I don't know how big he is in the United States. But when I grew up in Mexico and Europe, he was like the rock star. And I'm like, man, his stuff is more primitive than Mooka. You
3: know, I mean? that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah. I'm just. Yeah. I used to not like Lautrec, and I remember being a huge Lautrec fan, and or, I'm sorry, you huge Mooka fan. And this is like you know, I'm like in my twenties and seeing a Latrec poster and thinking, man, who would like this ugly? <laughs> like, I'm trying to stop, I'm trying to not swear on your thing. Uh and now that I'm older, mm. with the exception of Le Pater, I actually infinitely prefer Latrec.
0: Oh.
3: Uh, but that's a whole other long Yeah, yeah. Well thing. it happens. It gets more into I've <laughs> uh, like expressionist thinking, the idea that, that you know, suggestions of things. And like when I was a kid, if I saw expressionist art, I would just think, oh, that's very freaky and scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like I, the thing that changed that for me is I saw a documentary on expressionism and explaining that artists were trying to deal with the feelings of the First World War. And if you'd been an artist and the, I forget who it was, but they showed like these beautiful landscapes that he drew, then he was in a foxhole for two years. And then he came back and he was just drawing all these crazy squiggles. And then I, that, that opened up expressionism for me.
2: And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our AB live with Thomas Nigavan, man. We got into some high weirdness and beautiful places in our second part, including how to make it as an artist today. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus for Patrons at Patreon, Red Circle subscribers and AB Prime members, I'll include my interview with Tobias Churton on his book, Occult Paris. He'll grant an evocative and concise backdrop of Paris and its mysticism during era. Many of the figures in Thomas' interview will make an appearance, and much more. You'll deeply understand also why the androgynous god was rising then, as well as the liberation of women. And it all goes back to, yes, the Gnostic and Hermetic ethos. Don't miss it. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feeds from AB Prime or Patreon or Red Circle that work in the podcast provider of your choice. So please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon or Red Circle subscriber for the full audio interview and its bonus. And it supports this Red Bill Cafeteria. Go to the God Above God Dad Cam for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact me or check out the show notes. Whether it's Patreon or AB Prime or Red Circle, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. And it's certainly a valid way to surf this changing of the ages in this age of Hermes that androgynous godman thanks for being here thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real